0: My name is Anna wabari
1: And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. In November 2021, the UK is hosting the UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. In the run-up to this critical event, the Climate Briefing podcast brings you everything you need to know about the COP negotiations and international climate politics.
0: Throughout the year, we'll also be covering other important climate and environmental conferences, like the UN Biodiversity Summit. And we'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities the transition to net 0
1: societies entails. What solutions exist to help address climate change? And what can major emitters do to reduce their emissions?
0: What are the key themes for COP26? And what do the poorest and most climate vulnerable nations want from the negotiations?
1: To find out, we'll be speaking to policymakers, climate negotiators, business leaders, and experts from academia and civil society worldwide.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the climate briefing. I hope you've all had a nice summer. My name is Anna Wabari and I co-host this podcast together with my colleague Ben Horton, who is actually not here today. But I am delighted to be joined by another colleague of mine, Bernice Lee, who is a Research Director for Futures, Hoffman Distinguished Fellow for Sustainability and Chair of the Sustainability Accelerator Advisory Board here at Chatham House. Hi Bernice, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Good to hear. It's nice to see you. So, we're just coming out of Anga when we're recording this and the pre-COP is starting very shortly. There are only a few weeks to go until COP26 and what Bernice and I were hoping to do was to take stock of where we stand ahead of the Glasgow summit. So to do that, Bernice, I think most listeners will have a kind of a good grasp about what COP26 aims to do. But to set the scene, uh, would you
1: mind by outlining what the main aims of the Glasgow summit are, please? Of course. Thank you very much, Anna. I think that I would like to start by talking about what it isn't going to do. Now, what COP26 isn't going to do is it is not going to negotiate a new treaty like what we did in Paris. Also, what it isn't going to do, which is rather disappointing, is to in fact find complete answers to the climate change problem. But what it will do, however, are a couple of things. It is what we call the first of what is a new kind of COP, an ambition COP, which is where, if you will remember in Paris, countries come together and decided that instead of agreeing on what everyone should be doing top down in terms of emissions cut, Countries will be bringing forward their own submissions called nationally determined contributions in terms of emissions reduction and climate action. And we will compare notes in part of this stop-take exercise and part of the ratchet mechanism to make sure that these country-level ambitions and policies will add up. So this is what COP26 will be doing, which is to assess where we are when it comes to climate mitigation. So this is what COP26 will be doing, which is to do a stock take in terms of what mitigation action has amounted to through all the submissions by different countries in their nationally determined contributions. Interesting. Thanks so much. Just
0: picking up on the NDCs, these are expected to be submitted before the Glasgow summit, right? That's right. So where do we stand on that front? I guess quite a lot of governments would have submitted them by now, right?
1: That's right. I just checked this morning on the Climate Action Tracker, which is where we all go to look, in fact, to see where we are. And I think as of this morning, when I looked, about 89 countries, which are 88 plus EU27, have submitted, and that would cover about 56.6% or some of global emissions. Now, the good news is that there are 89 countries that have submitted. The bad news is that if you add them all up, it doesn't add up to getting the world to well below 2 degrees. It amounted to something still around 2.7 of warming. That's pretty concerning, right? I mean, we're only a few weeks away from Glasgow,
0: and it's really urgent that we reduce emissions a lot this decade to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. Are there any kind of discussions going on among governments about to respond to a potential gap at COP26?
1: Well, thanks for the question, because I think the reality is that it has long been known in some ways that the gap won't be bridged by COP26 in Glasgow this means that, well let me start by saying that it is a climate change problem it is also a political problem for COP26 and this is also the communications problem because despite the fact that there is a huge gap it is important that efforts will be ongoing to make sure that we will bridge this gap as well and this is among other reasons why there hopefully will be a form of declaration that will actually bring countries back together to reassess where things are within the next decade to make sure that we are also continue to bridge this gap. There are also other ideas that are being put forward in recent months and weeks by different countries, especially vulnerable countries, about whether or not countries should be submitting their annual reduction plan from now on. So all of these are yet to be played out. So essentially, it's all about kind of
0: ramping up ambition early this decade to put us on track for the Paris goals. That's right. Good. Well, there are other aspects of COP26 as well. And before we kind of discuss the finance and adaptation aspects, I just wanted to pick up on uh, some of these kind of sector deals that the UK is championing as COP26 president. Would you mind saying a few words about that?
1: Yeah, happily. I mean, I think first of all, obviously, if, if since you mentioned the UK presidency, they have certainly defined one of the goals of COP26 is to make sure that 1.5 is within reach. So this applies certainly to countries in terms of their NDC submissions. But this also applies to companies as well. Now, this is where, where one of the innovation is interesting coming out of COP26 will be a set of sector deals in the form of plurilateral agreements that the UK will be putting forward together with interested countries and parties in these plurilateral deals. So these, you know, the expectation is that there will be some around coal, around internal combustion engines uh, and forests as well. But also, very importantly, alongside these plurilateral deals and sector deals, there will be a lot of non-state actors who will be submitting and announcing their commitments to net zero, including, for example, many from the finance sector, including GFANS, which is a Glasgow financial alliance for net zero, that will be bringing forward commitments from different corporate actors, from finance to real economy actors, around 1.5. So in some ways, the sector deals together with these non-state actors will mean that it will be one of the first time that at COP, not only our country-level commitments uh, around net zero and 1.5 degree be in focus, also in focus will be commitments from non-state actors as well as these plural deals bringing the two sides together as well, state and non-state actors. Is this something we can expect to see more
0: at future COPs in general?
1: I think that because, as I mentioned earlier, that Glasgow is a new kind of COP. It is not where we will end up with a big treaty or where that is a goal, it is where acceleration and accountability will be extremely important. And if we want to accelerate and make sure that it is accountable, that we have more ambitious climate-related commitments, we are likely to see more, therefore, state and non-state actors acting in concert to deliver commitment plans and action plans that will take us closer to 1.5 degree two.
0: Thanks so much. So we've discussed kind of the mitigation aspects, but there are also other elements to Glasgow, of course. Most notably, there's a lot of talk about the 100 billion goal. Would you mind saying a few words about that, please?
1: I think that obviously it is also not a secret that there is a gap to bridging where we are today to delivering 100 billion a year from 2020. And I think the OECD report recently outlines you know some 20 billion gap that we have to bridge. And at the same time, what is good is that more countries have come forward in recent weeks with their office, including, for example, President Joe Biden from the US in anger, announcing the US would double its climate finance commitment to 11.4 billion from 2024. It is also good news that the EU has also announced that it will add 4 billion to it as well. So I think that with more of these announcements, we are getting closer. And the expectation is that Italy will also be announcing new climate finance commitment by G20. So we we are getting closer. We are not there yet. And therefore, I think we will need more announcements from different countries, including funds, among others, to make sure that there will be confidence that the delivery will be on schedule indeed.
0: Delivering on climate finance is, of course, a big priority for many developing countries. Uh, other priorities include adaptation and loss and damage. How are those issues expected to be addressed ahead of and COP26?
1: I think that in the run of the COP26, we still have a couple of other stopping stages, and obviously, one of which will be the pre COP, where there will be expectation there will be more alliances emerging around how to deliver an ambitious COP and that wouldn't just be around mitigation but also will be around loss and damage and adaptation as well we just talked about finance and I think that there is great hope that there will be more specific committed financing towards adaptation which has been increasing but still a bit you know, less than expected at this point and of course, this also ties very nicely into the upcoming Bretton Woods Institution's meeting, the annual meetings that will be coming up as well in the coming weeks. Now, this is obviously not just about climate finance on both sides, climate finance in terms of mitigation, finance in terms of adaptation. But it is also about the fact that the world is yet to be emerging out of the pandemic. And therefore, there is an ongoing debt crisis that needs to be relieved. And obviously, there needs to be vaccines that need to be delivered. So in some ways, the climate finance package, which is about setting us en route to green recovery, and a package of solidarity that would include debt relief as well as vaccine, together with climate finance, are all part of the larger package that needs to be put together in, in the run-up to Glasgow so that there will be a solid message and a solid delivery from Glasgow around the finance package that would be part of a solidarity package, as I mentioned, that is not just about delivering clean energy finance and adaptation finance, but also meeting other needs, such as the strong green recovery coming out of the pandemic and the debt crisis as well. Thanks. I agree that's really really important. I was wondering actually if you could say a few more
0: words about how COVID-19 has impacted the climate negotiations. I'm not thinking so much now about the the postponement, but you mentioned developing countries experiencing high debt ratios. Uh, obviously, there's very significant inequality when it comes to distribution of vaccines. Uh, how have these issues impacted kind of trust between developed and developing countries and the climate talks, if, if at all?
1: Yeah, I think that definitely there are many concerns that we have heard over many months now from developing countries, especially vulnerable economies, around how challenging it is for, for them to be expected to be delivering their share of climate mitigation, while at the same time tackling adaptation challenges, as well as making sure that they're on track back to another generation of growth after the pandemic. So I think that it is certainly affecting the atmospheric of the mood music. To say that there's a lot of rage is a really understatement, because it is a very stark reminder of the fact that climate justice remain a really challenging issue that the world hasn't even begun to tackle. And vaccines are indeed one of the largest manifestation. So definitely it will be it has affected trust as well as confidence that promises made will be delivered. and it is why it is extremely important that the climate finance gap will be bridged so that the trust could be built and rebuilt so that we can be on our way to more climate resilient recovery and growth as well. So we've kind of touched on the pre-COP and we've been talking
0: about the IMF, World Bank Group annual meetings. There is also the G20 Leaders Summit coming up just before COP26. Would you mind saying a few words about that? Uh, Can we expect a last-minute breakthrough ahead of the summit?
1: I mean, I can't read tea leaves, so I don't know whether or not there will be last-minute breakthrough or not. But at the same time, what we do know is that it is extremely important that G20 countries, because they are major economies, will be coming forward with the rest of them who haven't submitted their NDCs yet with theirs in such a way that will set us onto a 1.5 pathway. Now, it's good news that South Africa just submitted theirs, but obviously there are many who have said that they won't be submitting new ones, and that includes Brazil, Mexico... Indonesia, for example. China and India have both said that they would, and the question is when, and the expectation is that they will be submitting it before COP twenty six. And I think they just both reiterated recently, in fact in this week that they will be submitting theirs as well. So of course above all the most important one is gonna be China. At the moment the expectation is not necessarily that they will revise the what what is now known as a thirty sixty target, which is that China will peak before twenty thirty and will reach Carbon neutrality by 2060. But what is expected from China, definitely, which is above all important because of its size, and, and by some calculation, is really the emissions of all of G7 combined. It is important that there will be more policy detail, if not new targets that comes out of China because of China's size, this means that whatever it does is important and therefore sends the important and big market signals. So the expectation is that because the skipper has blown the whistle in the case of China that he has instructed the different polities in China to come up with specific implementation plan of the 3060 targets, meaning peaking before 2030, and reaching carbon neutrality by 2060, there'll be more policy detail in terms of implementation, whether in terms of provincial plans or sectoral plans that will come out of China. So it is quite important that it is sending the right signal in terms of how it will be implementing its 3060 target. And that will be an important one to watch alongside the one from India.
0: Thanks. That's really interesting. China is, of course, the, the largest debater in the world, so absolutely crucial what it does. The second largest emitter is, of course, the U.S. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit on how the U.S.-China relationship, which is not at tip top, to put it lightly, how these kind of broader geopolitics are influencing the climate talks, if at all.
1: I mean, I think that obviously as climate becomes more mainstream and after the summer we've had, in terms of all the apocalyptic events that we've seen as well. Climate is likely to continue to be an extremely important top table issue from now on. It is therefore not surprising that as climate change's importance increases in political agendas, it will be caught up with or is going to be part of big power dynamics and politics. And much has been written about US-China politics, including over climate change and whether or not there should be a separate lane for climate change, which China very roundly rejected. But I think the important thing to remember here is that despite the fact that there has been growing tensions over trade, over other types of geopolitical competition between US and China... The two sides have continued talking between John Kerry and She Changhua, the two climate envoys, and they have met, I understand, no less than 18, 19 times in recent months. So the fact that even though that the two sides are now engaging in earnest in geopolitical competition, the good news is that they keep talking and they are continue to talk. And I think what we saw recently, if not a coordinated move, but definitely the moves by both U.S. and China at Anger. On the U.S. side, as I mentioned earlier, doubling climate finance to $11.4 billion is a good sign, from 2024 even. And on the Chinese side, the announcement that it will not be continuing public financing or overseas coal is another good sign. So the hope is that despite the geopolitical competition, and despite the fact that they will likely rub over onto climate politics, the two sides will keep talking, and that they will harness the competitive energy towards a race to the top, and doing more to outdo each other rather than harnessing the energy to actually lower ambition, which at the moment I hope that we we are not seeing just yet at this point.
0: Before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on a kind of a final element of uh, the Glasgow agenda. There is something called the Paris rule book, uh, which is yet to be finalized. Uh, could you please describe what that is and what is expected to happen at COP26?
1: So there are technical issues that have to be negotiated, but there are also stuff around transparency, around carbon market. And around loss and damage and adaptation as well, that is expected to be finished. So the hope is that the negotiation on the rulebook will be completed at COP26 in Glasgow indeed. Okay, so now this is actually the final question. (laughs) We've already discussed some of the
0: implications of the pandemic. But of course, COVID-19 also presents very practical and logistical challenges when it comes to hosting this meeting in just a few weeks' time in person in Glasgow. Developing countries are concerned that they will not be able to come, many of them. Would you mind saying a few words about that?
1: Yes, thank you. I think that obviously this is not just a logistical challenge, it is also a political challenge as well. So I think that this is obviously adding to what is already quite a packed agenda, a major political challenge. But at the same time, what has become quite obvious is that actually there are benefits to in person meetings. And so therefore, The hope is that despite all the challenges, the host country such as the UK, as well as others who are supporting the COP26 and all the different actors who are part of the process will be coming together with rolled up sleeves and trying to find a solution to all these logistical challenges that are yet to be resolved in the run up to COP26 as well because inclusivity is really important right i mean how would it affect the
0: the perception of glasgow and what is negotiated there if not all countries can participate in in person
1: It is obviously important that because the United Nations is a universal institution, it is of course intending that all countries could participate. And I think that at the moment, it is clear that it is a challenge that needs to be resolved. But at the same time, I think that while we need to stick to principles, we also need to stick to more flexibility to make sure that everyone's voices is being heard. So I think it is time for creativity and time for inclusivity as well as creativity to make sure that we can deliver inclusiveness in a way that feels genuine and at the same time enhances the process as well as obviously the outcome as well of COP26. Bernice, thanks so much. It's been really great
0: talking to you. Obviously, some progress has been made, but it seems like some substantial challenges remain to be overcome before COP26. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Okay, listeners. This was the climate briefing, providing you with an overview of COP26, where we stand and uh, what we need to keep our eyes on the next few weeks. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, please do listen back to previous episodes, which can be found on the Chatham House website, on Spotify and all major podcast outlets. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.